Welcome to The Mother Whelm. This is a podcast for mothers and parents to safely share the challenges and triumphs of motherhood, shed light on taboos, and celebrate everyday victories. I'm your host, Bronwyn, and I'm here to talk to you about all things motherhood, the miraculous parts and the overwhelming parts, the ones that make you wonder how you got here, and those that make you realise you're exactly where you should be. This podcast is produced on Darug and Gundungara country, land that has been the home of mothering and storytelling for tens of thousands of years. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the Darug and Gundungara elders, past, present and emerging as the traditional custodians of this land. In today's episode, I talk to Jen, a first-time mum who gave birth to her son Luca at 33 weeks. She shares her experience of unexpectedly being challenged by anxiety and anger in postpartum, how motherhood has given her a new perspective on her role as a social worker, and the way she has empowered herself by advocating for her son throughout their NICU journey. Let's begin. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Jen. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Can you start us off by telling us who is in your family? Yes, so um, it is me, my husband, Javi, and our 15-month-old, Luca. And then in our household, um, Javier's parents live with us. They moved from Texas um, to be with us uh, last, let's see, the beginning of the year, I think. Um, So it's been so nice to have a little community and just have um, extra help and support. (laughs) Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And what were you like before you became a mother? Probably less anxious, <laughs> honestly. My work and what I did played a lot in my role and my identity. So before becoming a mom, I was a school social worker, therapist, um, took a lot of pride in my work. And really that was my focus. And then being a dog mom, and <laughs> really they came first and walking the dogs and having time and space for creativity and time with my partner that, you know, we could do, we got into creating music over COVID um, and just little song loops. And so I think, yeah, I just really creative and just a working professional, honestly. And it's, it's a big shift now because I'm, I'm staying, I'm a stay at home mom now. And that's been an adjustment to, you know, when your profession is really wrapped up in your identity and then you're not working anymore. Um, and then you're navigating your new motherhood identity without kind of your old identity. It's, it's kind of a whirlwind. It's, it's reshifting priorities and figuring out like, you know, how do I still keep me and myself and who I was before in this new chapter, but still have that be adjusted with your priorities, your baby. So what were your expectations of motherhood before you had your son? Expectations of motherhood. Honestly, I was very maternal from a young age. Like I knew when I was little, I always wanted to be a mom, playing with my dolls, having my little sister. Like I was very much like very maternal and caring and just a caregiver. I I loved babies. You know, my first job was babysitting and um, a lot of my work in the field is around child advocacy and, you know, behavioral stuff within children. And I don't think, you know, I had this this part of me and and my passion for that, but I, 
I don't really think I had expectations for what I would be like as a mom or what the journey would be like. It was kind of this like abstract thing, like it'll happen one day or, you know, like just excited to raise and have one on my own. But um, yeah, I didn't have too many expectations. I just knew like, oh, I think my personality of, of being that caregiver nurturer, you know, would kind of just come into play and, and have it be a very natural, organic thing. Yeah. I very much was challenged with perfectionism in motherhood for mm-hmm. a perfect home, perfect marriage. You see it on social media all the time, even a perfect birth and a yeah. perfect delivery and a perfect like pregnancy and no symptoms or <laughs> you see a lot on social media of the just this like the perfectionism and the image of the the perfect mom and all the things like you know you juggle this you juggle this you know we talk about the invisible load but it shouldn't affect us we're kind of robots yeah. we should that's our role and i think it's even harder as a stay at home parent because it's like that's your job essentially like and so it's like asking for a break it's like oh no I'm not working this is my contribution to my family and I guess expectation just the motherhood piece within my family like you know there's this idea of like selfless selflessness like as moms we have to be this selfless being to you know the child is the primary focus and I've seen from other parents, like in my 20 year, 30 year span and of how that goes when you're completely selfless, that whole, you know, until they're raised zero to 18. And then it's like, what's your identity now once your kids are raised? And I've seen it 180 where it's like, okay, this parent stopped mothering because she had such bad boundaries in the beginning, being this selfless person, selfless mom, that now it's like, the complete opposite where she's kind of done parenting now, even when their kids are older and raised and now she's just fully focused on herself mm-hmm. and very self-absorbed and not a parent that you're able to, to be there and, and talk to, or, you know, have that adult relationship with. And so I think the boundaries of that is really important of, you know, yes, our child, our baby, especially those first years, like that's the primary focus, but trying to find ways to still nurture your sense of self and, and find that time in the space to still, you know, uplift and and nurture the different parts of you as a mom and your different parts of your identity. Um, Because when your kids are out of the house, like what do you have to fall back on when that time comes and you're an adult parent now, but um, yeah, I've seen it kind of on the extreme side. And so it's really, you know, trying to ask for help or, and trying to take perfectionism all out, out of the window. Like there's no such thing. If we strive for that, we'll just feel like failures mm-hmm. and then feel defeated. And then the guilt and shame cycle will start and then you feel worse. <laughs> like So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, there was one, when you said Instagram, there's one particular, I think it's probably on TikTok, but there's one particular account that, I don't know if I follow her or if she just kind of comes up, but she's fosters and has her own children, but she's got like three, four-year-olds or something like that and two other ones. And they do this like house reset every night, her and her husband. And and it makes it look so easy, but I'm like, how? how are you doing that what energy do you have if you've got three four year old and then the feeling like that should be attainable but it's yeah 
not right now for us I guess like oh yeah. anyway yeah well even if even the idea of like the bounce back culture, like I just mm. gave birth, I'm going to bounce back into my old body. Well, you'll never have your old body back. It's a new body. It's been yeah. through a lot of new things, but like, yeah, the just waking up at five in the morning before your newborn wakes up to get yourself showered and ready and wear makeup. It's like the first nine months I was in sweatpants showering twice a week, not wearing ever makeup, like dry yeah. shampoo every day. Like, and it, those accounts like, okay, that's great that that works for you, but that's not, I don't think the narrative for mm -hmm. every postpartum mom, <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's just juggling your sanity, especially when you're sleep deprived, like your hygiene and even food. <laughs> we lived off of freezer foods and Costco pre-made meals for <laughs> the first few months. Like yeah. it's, and I think on, on our aspect, it's harder when you're navigating medical challenges, like mm -hmm. post NICU and, and when your child has, has special needs and disabilities, like that plays a whole other factor in all the things that you're, you're trying to balance. And so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what was your journey to motherhood like? special unique mm -hmm. yeah I like my my husband calls it his origin story like a superhero <laughs> like it's his origin you know pregnancy was really really hard um went through a lot of different just medical stuff at you know the 12 week the 20 week the finding different things navigating gestational diabetes and just you know you can prepare all you can for the medical complications that come up during that and almost feeling guilty when you go into an ultrasound and you're expecting, you know, worst case scenario or the other shoe to drop or, you know, because it, having some of those complications kind of robs the joy of it because it's more anxiety ridden mm. than anything and learning that you can only do so much or prepare so much and it can completely go nothing like what you would have expected so it's almost like what's the point of even having expectations mm -hmm. um but I have some birth trauma we had an emergency c-section I had a placenta abruption that was unknown I had no symptoms until later that that day it was like a Friday um, and I was monitored every few um, days of the week for you know the stress monitoring stress stress ultrasounds everything and that morning I had an appointment and our score was great everything looked right and then not even five or six hours later er is picking me up outside an indian restaurant because i couldn't drive and i was throwing up and feeling faint and dizzy mm -hmm. and you know trying to listen to my body and and the instinct of like something's not right and this isn't low blood sugar but this something's wrong and so I remember, you know, going to the the hospital. My husband met me there because we were in different parts of the town and he was home and just hearing a doctor say like, oh, we're going to have to deliver at 33 weeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's, it's almost like the world stands still and you're just stuck in that moment. And you, it's very surreal. Like, is this really happening? Are, are you sure? Like, I thought I was going to get discharged later. Like we had a whole Friday night self-care plan out. Like, uh, what do you mean? And I remember one thing that kind of triggered me even was like getting prepped and ready. Um, the, one of the doctors or med professionals was like, congratulations, we're going to have a birthday today or tonight. 
And I'm thinking like, why would you say congratulations to me? This isn't a, this isn't a happy, this isn't a congratulated thing. This is like a scary, not supposed to happen. It's not supposed to time. It's too soon. It's way too early. And even at delivery. So I had to get, you know, the, the um, epidural and the emergency C-section. I was throwing up for it. I was very, barely in and out, lost tons of blood because we didn't know that's what I had. Even the doctor didn't know that's what I had going in. She's just like, something's not right. Like we have to. Um, and honestly, that doctor saved myself and my son's life because the outcome could have been completely different. And you always look hindsight at all the events leading up to that, where it's like, if one thing took a little bit longer, or if I hadn't called in, or I waited, or I went home, or I didn't take an ambulance, or just all these different things. Yeah, so it was a scary, scary birth, scary delivery. He went straight to the NICU. And I remember when he was delivered, they're like time of birth and said the birth. And I thought I had asked right away, but my husband said it was like 10, 15 minutes after. Cause I finally, I thought I was in, it was in the now, but I was like, is he crying? I don't hear him crying. crying. Why isn't he crying? Um, and my husband had seen one of the anesthesiologists look at the nurse when they took him away and them just shaking their head. No. Like he didn't make it. And that was so scary not hearing. And, you know, after a year now or, you know, 15 months later and still thinking back to some of these kind of big moments of like, those are the ones that very much stick in your, your mind, you know, um, that leave that impression. But, um, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't able to see, um, Luca for, until like three in the morning, he was delivered at 11 at night. Um, and by the time I, I was more covered, I got wheeled down to the NICU. Um, so yeah, it was a very, not <laughs> like what I expected at all. And we were just talking about social media and the perfect birth. And you see all these celebrities of like, you know, doing like even pregnancy photos, having pregnancy photos and having, you know, the skin to skin contact right after and nursing pictures and all these like things that as a NICU parent, like you don't think about how sad and how grieving it is to not have those things, especially when they come so early. And then we were in the NICU for almost three months um, yeah. navigating that. So. so at what point did they tell you that Luca was all right? Because if you're saying your husband saw someone shake their head mm -hmm. and so like that's, that's what he thought Luca hadn't made it. At what yeah. point did someone actually come yeah. to you and say, no, he's okay? Like That'd be a question for my husband. Yeah, I, I don't remember because I was yeah. kind of in and out. I remember he followed them to the NICU mm -hmm. after, okay. um, and then I was in the recovery room. And then at 3 a.m. is when they're like, yeah. hey, do you want to? Do you want to see him? And I remember a chaplain coming in because it was such a whirlwind. It was so surreal. And it's so hard to be present when you're recovering from this, this trauma. And I remember chaplain saying, like, when you look at your newborn, there's going to be lots of wires and cords to try to look at the baby themselves. Like try to look at the face behind all the, the cords and the tapes and the wires and, and see, see them don't, mm -hmm. don't focus on all those other things. And that's kind of what I tried to go into um, yeah. when I, when I first saw him. Mm -hmm. So can you walk us through your experience in the NICU and what mm -hmm. happened there? 
Yeah. So I was in the hospital, um, delivered Friday night. I got discharged like Tuesday night. So I was in there the full four full days. And normally with C-sections a lot less, but because I was so weak from all the blood loss, I had to get, um, a different transfusions to, to get my strength up and, and things like that. So it was a really hard road for me personally, recovering physically from that. But really the first few days it was focused on pumping. And then it was so nice to still be in the hospital to be able to just go down a floor and see him anytime I wanted. And so that was great. One of the hardest parts in the NICU journey was being discharged without myself being discharged without going home with your baby. Like I was a mess. It was so hard. You're like leaving your heart behind at the hospital. And it's Mm -hmm. like, this isn't how it should be. Like your child belongs with you. And so those first few days and weeks, like you end up getting into a routine, getting into a system. I ended up seeing him every day. I'd go to the NICU every day. I'd never missed a day for 11 weeks. It was kind of my job. And even that was like, I had to leave my job. Even the three months of that would have been maternity leave. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going back to work as soon as he's getting home. The first few weeks, it was really just the survival mode, taking one day at a time, like, you know, him just gaining the strength and being okay. I wasn't able to hold him until eight days after birth. I never asked before, but I didn't know I could ask until a nurse kind of offered that. So bless her heart that she offered, but just like how delicate and fragile they are of holding them for the first time. It's very anxiety ridden too. I just remember I had pictures of just like looking at the monitors and it sometimes takes away from like how that was one of the most impactful times, obviously, but just having the medical piece behind it all was, was a little stressful. One of the things they don't really prepare you in the NICU journey is like, you know, you're so focused on that survival wing of it and, and getting stable and gaining weight and getting off the oxygen. And then the whole kind of second chapter of the NICU is them being able to learn to eat and feed and do the basic things newborns can do. And for me in our NICU stay, that's what felt like the longest time. Like, is it time to go home? Like like you cannot plan for it. I remember nurse saying like, if you're a type A person or you're a planner person, the NICU is not a place for you because honestly you're going based on your child's timeline and you can't rush it because if you rush that and they're not stable, then you're just going to end up back. And how more frustrating is that? Especially in the PICU, I've heard that's not as supportive, you know, all encompassing as the NICU is. So yeah, we, we found staff that we really liked that you can advocate in the NICU and, and ask, you know, can you be my primary nurse for a day shift or a night shift? And during the NICU stay, I remember when I come home, I just felt so guilty doing normal fun activities. Like my dad came to town from out of state around, you know, when all this happened to support us and he wanted to take us out to a movie. And I'm like, if my son was home as a newborn, I wouldn't be able to do all these things, like go out to a restaurant or do all these things that I'm doing now. So it almost like felt very guilty doing these things, like continuing my life without my baby, knowing my baby's still in the hospital, but it's all out of my control. And then my relationship with pumping was very much, 
I was very hyper-focused. I'm like, this is the only thing that I feel I can do for my baby right now. And so I would pump every two to three hours around the clock, even in the middle of the night, every two to three hours. I was like, if he was home, I would be sleep deprived. So I'm going to be sleep deprived. And nurses would be like, you need to rest. You need to go home and sleep. And I would I would, every time I'd pump throughout the night, I'd call the NICU nurses and have a 2 a.m. update. Yeah. And then feeling empowered as a mom, like it's hard to feel empowered as a new mom navigating in the NICU because, you know, you're, I think Danielle from your last episode is very much co-parenting with the medical Mm. team. And I, I resonate with that. You can sit in rounds, but they're really the experts. And one of the times I felt most empowered was um, our hospital. They offered like a breastfeeding challenge or bottling challenge that you could stay in one of the rooms upstairs for, you know, 48, 72 hours and just every cares every three hours go down and try to feed and that was a big challenge for us, but, um, being able to soothe him in the middle of the night and, and feel like, like, Oh, I'm learning how to calm my baby when, when they're upset because he was a sleepy guy. Like he would always sleep during the day and he'd be up at night and I wasn't there around the clock. So, um, that was really special, but yeah, the feeding challenge took the longest. Um, he ended up going home with, with a feeding tube and then navigating all the medical, equipment and and the therapies and everything after the NICU was a whole nother another thing but um yeah the NICU's a, a special special thing to to system monster beast to, to have to <laughs> go through yeah so the next question's I think a pretty obvious answer too <laughs> but did your birth impact your postpartum and overall experience of motherhood yeah yeah <laughs> it's hard to feel like you lose out on this time with them and then the further we get away from the NICU the further away it seems and like you said you're starting to remember bits and pieces of it I I'd say that's that's kind of trauma too like once things kind of get stabled stabilized or you're sleeping better or just things like things can come up and you can get flashbacks or you know remember stuff that you had forgotten forgot when you were in the midst of it all um and so that's huge to just allow yourself to leave space to remember those things um even if they come up at different times that you don't expect um i'm sure i'll still remember things but I think being home now after a year, we celebrated a year of him being home in October, just last month. Um, And there's trauma anniversaries too. There's the anniversaries, like grief anniversaries that can come up that just bring all these things back. And so trying to find ways to to honor those days. I remember a big kind of trauma anniversary was like our our 40th, our due date, our would have been due date. Um, and that was like, oh, he would have been here today or this this is when we would have planned for. And so that's kind of a, a mind adjustment and just bringing yourself back to like, this is, this is no, this is how it gone and everything kind of happens for a reason. And I think our story and navigating all we have I'm trying to view it as like, this is a calling. This is like a purpose. Like we've, we've gone through things, these things and, you know, there's, there's a reason behind it. And I think my faith got really foundational during the NICU and something I really leaned on during that time. 
and something that when Luca gets older to understand and comprehend just how much of a miracle he really is. And so I think it's twofold. The things that we go through make us stronger and give us insight and don't let us take these things for granted. On the flip side of that, mental health, a lot of anxiety during the NICU stay, a lot of trauma, a lot of seeing your baby go through different medical procedures and different things and, and going home a few hours after procedure when you're like, if this was my spouse, I'd be at his bedside all night. But like that balance of like, no, I have to sleep. I have to take care of me too, but you don't want to, you want to be there for your child and not knowing how can I like, within the constructs of, of the NICU. And I think I'm still trying to work through my anxiety of just like, especially during a feeding journey. And, you know, there was a lot of reflex and gagging and, you know, throwing up and being really aware of what triggers that anxiety for me moving forward. I don't want to pass on any anxiety or these things to him. And so really still trying to work on on myself and and find healing and space to like well that was then and every day is a new day and and trying to just move forward from those things mm-hmm. um I, you know I I don't know how it, it would have been if we didn't go through all that we went through like I don't know you know it's just part of our story and and moving forward just in the future with parenting just yeah, not trying to be a hover mother, not mm-hmm. just keeping my anxiety in check, but um, not bringing a lot of that peace in the now, which is hard, especially with, like when you have medical equipment coming home from the NICU, it's really hard to have distance and like mm-hmm. grieve the NICU and like process when you still feel like you're actively in it. You're just home, you yeah. know? So yeah. So- <laughs> So what was it like coming home and that, I guess, maybe that first day or night, what what was that journey like? It was so scary. <laughs> like it's supposed to be this very celebratory thing, but it's, it's very isolating. Like you have a, a, a 24 hour staff you have access to of nurses and different providers that you can ask if something, and you know, with the G tube, we, I only did kind of like what you said, the overnight room, we only got maybe two nights. And that Mm -hmm. first night I maybe only got an hour of sleep because I was so anxious of the feeding and I could call a nurse to ask about the math and the volumes and figuring it all out. And, um, I just remember being really sleep deprived, being really, really overwhelmed and just really stressed and anxious, (laughs) like, to be honest, like it, you're happy you're home but then you're like now what (laughs) like now what (laughs) trying to figure and then even just trying to navigate your own routine at home like we stayed at the same every three hours the same cycle um from the NICU because that's what also we knew but for his feeding schedule and with the feeding and using a pump you know and the reflux which is a side effect of that with the vomiting like you know, his feeds could take up to an hour and then he have to be upright for 45 minutes to an hour to digest. And then sometimes he could be throwing up before his next feed three hours later. Mm. And so it's hard to do tummy time when they have a G-tube and just they're, they're having reflux symptoms. And yeah, I just, I just remember feeling just relieved, but very, very overwhelmed, just very anxious, very, very scared, very stressed. Mm-hmm. 
what did your support system look like in that time? Yeah. So at that time, it was just my husband and I at home. Um, and we're, we moved away from family. I have family on the West coast, um, Washington state, some in Florida, like I had family in Germany at the time. Um, and my in-laws were in Texas time and, but it was just him and I, and luckily, you know, my husband had to eventually go back to work. Luckily he worked from home because he's a therapist as well. Um, and so he was doing telehealth. So having that support home was so beneficial because he could just really support me. Um, and then I had family, you know, my girlfriends that were out of state set up a GoFundMe for our, our medical stuff. And then they set up meal trains. And so Mm -hmm. I had a lot of family, um, sending just dinners and things that were so, so nice. My sister, let me use her Uber eats. that could deliver food for us. Um, so it was amazing to see all the support that poured in from out of state. Um, we had different family Our each of our parents, sets of parents flew in or especially around the, the due date. Um, and it was hard because around the due date, we were, he was still in the NICU. And mm. so they still came, came to like expect to see. And I actually advocated, um, for them to meet him in the NICU because they were still kind of like no visitors allow, like it's just primary parents, mm. but I'm like, my family came in town for their due date for still here two and a half months later. Like, and so I talked to one of the charge nurses who like upped the request and got it approved to be able to have family come meet him, which yeah. was so special. Yeah. So families do what they, what they can with their means. Um, we got, it was hard when you're in it though, day in and day out, it still feels very isolating because you're mm-hmm. navigating all these things that, you know, you don't maybe know a lot of people. I had no experience with the feeding tube. I had no other friends or family members that went through a birth trauma or feeding, mm-hmm. feeding journey. So yeah. the support was really around just kind of visiting, um, financial, the food piece. Yeah. I was going to ask about your your friendship circle and if you had any any friends who were mothers at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had almost all my close college girlfriends from the West Coast. We're all kind of scattered now. Um, we've been friends for 10 plus years and um, we have our group college girl chat that we still mm-hmm. talk to. Um, and I had seen one of my best friends in Seattle um, when I was maybe halfway through my pregnancy. So, um, still really, yeah, just relied a lot on, on, um, their support and talking, but it's different because you're, you're not supposed to compare, but it's hard to, you don't know it. It's a different journey. Right. And you don't know what you've gone through until other people Mm -hmm. have. And so that's why I kind of created kind of similar to your story. Like, that's why I kind of created my Instagram on my first mother's day. I'm like, this all feels so isolating. Um, and my Luca, you mentioned the medical piece. Um, he has hearing aids and glasses. Mm -hmm. And so navigating all those different providers and finding out like, oh, he needs, he needs these things. It's, it, it almost felt like, oh, just one more thing, but it's luckily we caught it early enough, but you know, I don't know any other, other kids or family members yeah. or supports that have the same things that we've gone through. So, yeah. So can you tell us a bit about that Instagram page that you've created and how people yeah. can find you? Yeah. So we're um, miracle kids 
N parents uh, network. Um, so the whole kind of thing is parent support network. And I created it on my first mother's day because I felt really, um, like I wanted to use my journey to inspire others, but also like build a community and meet other parents that have gone through mm -hmm. the similar journey or have, have navigated similar things. Um, and it's been amazing to have connected to all the moms that I have connected. Like, it's such a feeling of like, oh, I'm not alone. Oh, there's other families that have gone, have feeding tube stuff, have hearing aids, like all these different things that I felt so alone and isolated in. Um, and being a social worker, you know, I miss work. I miss connecting with people and being home day in and day out with a little guy. Like I miss having adult conversations <laughs> and getting out of the house or just having, yeah, having mom-to-mom um, -mom chats. So that's kind yeah. of the reason why behind um just wanting that to build that community and, and hear other people's journeys and um what I've learned and especially mental health I think sometimes like we said on Instagram like social media we see the perfectionism and the ideal and it's like that's far from reality and when we have that narrative and that's the norm for people it just impacts your mental health when that's not the case um for for people so yeah yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love hearing mothers kind of, if you don't have it, then you build it, you know, creating it for themselves. I think it's mm -hmm. really, really beautiful. And I love how proactive just women doing it for themselves. I really, I really love those stories. I think it's beautiful because it can be even just to kind of, even when you're not navigating challenges like NICU experience, for example, mm -hmm motherhood is just generally isolating <laughs> yeah. you know and so like layer upon layer on top of that of the challenges that you mm -hmm. you're you faced and are facing I guess you kind of need need to be proactive about finding that community because mm -hmm. what's the alternative <laughs> yeah you know there's, there's a lot yeah. of suffering suffering there if you don't have sounding boards or mm -hmm. or people to people who do have similar experiences to talk with I think mm -hmm. that's an amazing thing that you've done for yourself and are, are doing for other women as well and other parents yeah thank you thank you and it's a lot on your spouse too if, if mm. your spouse is your sole purpose to find that support because they also have a different experience navigating the NICU or all the things that they're and sometimes you know the dads of the families are sometimes the financial people that take on that role and then have their own stressors instead of stressors that maybe the, the moms don't have. And so it's, it's so nice to, to connect. And I love that. Yeah. If you don't have it, just create it um, yeah. because it is out there. It's just seeking. And for us being in a new state and not having any connections, especially in person, like, you know, starting our play group, our monthly play groups, I met another mom that showed up for one and she has a son that's similar in age and she lives 10 minutes away. And so we've mm. been able to do like one-on-one -on -one play dates every yeah. few times a month. And that's so important for our son too, to have that socialization and learn those mm. skills. Um, so Oh, that's yeah. lovely. Yeah. <laughs> and so would you mind sharing how your relationship with your husband has changed honestly we talk about this all the time because we're both therapists like and we just yeah. started a, a private <laughs> practice and you know he I'm a social worker he's a mental health counselor and he had to be the foundation. We had two dogs at home during our NICU stay and knowing that he had a very different experience navigating all of it. Like not only was it just the baby he had to worry about, but it was me too. That was mm. healing and recovering. And 
So honoring that, you know, different experiences and how we went through the similar thing, but each can have different things that come along with that. But we're both kind of in a place of grieving our old us. (laughs) Like we miss having, and especially when sleep is a problem because our bed after bedtime routine and he's asleep, that's us time. That's self-care. That's couple time. That's us to recharge and interact and have things not be related to um, parenting and so we're, we've both talked about how, yeah, we're in the place of kind of grieving our, our relationship before baby and being able to just do whatever we want, whenever we want with no responsibilities besides the dogs. And we miss that part. And so it's definitely a learning curve to figure out and carve out how you can still nurture your relationship. The other thing about him and I, which has changed, but I think we really balance each other out is, you know, like you said, the medical piece, like having a co-parent with medical team. I was very, even after the NICU, I was very much like, we can't make any changes unless we run this by a doctor. Like we have to, you know, make sure it's okay. And the team and yeah, da, da, da. and he's like, he is our son. We can do what we want. We're home now. It's okay. <laughs> so like very much him being empowered uh, to say that and not have that anxious medical piece of like, no, he's, he's our kid. We make the decisions, like, let's try it. And so really both of us trying to find our voice and feel empowered, but work together as a team and having different perspectives coming in and trying to kind of, yeah, navigate that. Yeah. It's been, it's been a journey. And that is, that's a big shift to make as well in your kind of mental state of of listening to the medical professionals and then suddenly they're not there. That's a big shift to to make. I did want to ask, is there anything about the NICU experience or anything that you would like other people to know? Any advice you would have? Honestly, the things that really impacted me were taking a day at a time, trying to not put stress or, you know, they say like, you know, your, your time, your discharge date could be around your baby's due date, but that's not always the case. And you can always feel let down if you have these like imaginary expectations of when you're going to go home. Um, and so sitting in rounds advocacy piece, trying to set up your team that you feel comfortable with. If you have an OT, a feeding therapist, a lactation person that you really quick click with, continue to meet with them and try to plan out your visits with, with those providers that you really like. You can also advocate for a primary day and night nurse during their shifts. And so to have someone consistent there for that shift, which is good for yourself that you don't, you, you are building this relationship and it's not a new person every time. And, you know, you have the flow with them. Like I'll be here for a diaper. I'll call them to check in in the morning. Like you kind of find a rhythm with them and that's good for your baby too, to have the same kind of personality and, and um, get to know. I'm trying to think what else. Yeah. The feeding piece can feel sometimes like the longest, but really just a day at a time. And there's no right or wrong way to navigate the NICU. Like you don't have to go every day. If, if there's things that come up or, you know, sometimes transportation can be a burden. Sometimes you have other children you have to take care of. Like 
it's all a balance and trying to really take time to listen to your body. And if you need to rest, rest, if you need to eat, eat, I rarely ever ate. Like I was very unhealthy during our next day. I'm like, I'm just going to, you know, skip a meal. And that's not good for pumping either. You need to, you know, take care of yourself too, but it will get easier and it does get easier. And the further away you are, if you think of like, you're a parent for, for the rest of your life, and especially those first 18 years, like your NICU stay is just a small glimpse of that time and letting yourself feel all the things that come up with that, like grieving that you didn't have that newborn phase, grieving that this is how it happened for you. Um, just, you know, letting yourself feel all the things that come up in whatever way you want to express it, whether that's journaling or, you know, poems or art or whatever, there's really powerful ways to express and get that out. And then just when you're at the NICU, try to be really present with your baby, try to just not be worried and just be in that moment and really enjoy that skin to skin time and know that this season will pass too. Eventually it'll feel hard when you're in it, but it gets easier the further you move away from that. And then you'll think like, how did I ever get through that? So I don't know if those, those are helpful things, but those are the things that kind of helped me get through it. I was thinking when you were you were talking about the, you know the different ways to express those feelings. I was thinking you know like you have done creating the social media account. It's mm -hmm. another yeah. way, another beautiful thing that you've done in terms of expressing that ex those experiences. Mm -hmm. On my Instagram, like a lot of the reels that I do is like, "Hey, Nikki, Mama," and then it's like whatever I want to share, and it's those posts are really like what I wish I would have reminded myself when I went through it, you yeah. know, like trying to rest, trying to just those different things. So I think it's easier. It's easy to create this like content or whatever these things, because it's lived experiences and they're, they're like reminders for me of when I went through it, like that were helpful. So, yeah. And yeah. I think I really like that you had, and I wonder if you, did you, re the chaplain that came to you, did you request them or did they just kind of send that person to you? Because I, I think that's good to have someone say, focus on the baby, not the, the wires. Yeah. Yeah. And all the medical equipment. I was just like, so the chaplain stopped by the room, but I wasn't available or I was sleeping or something happened, but then I requested to see them again and they yeah. came. Um, I did, however, request to meet with a social worker that entire four day hospital stay and not until up to an hour before I was being discharged and left is when I finally got to talk to somebody mm. and it was not helpful. And then they said they'd follow up with a bunch of things the next day when I was there and they didn't. And so that's, what's really hard to, and being a social worker, asking for social work services, like, and then feeling let down by your own profession that they weren't there or they didn't like you're advocating and doing what you need to do to ask for support. And then they weren't there to give it like that really was very defeating to mm -hmm. me, disappointing. Yeah. Can you explain what, what the role of a social worker would be in that context and what you were hoping for? 
Well, the times that I did see the social worker or the different ones that floated around during my three-month NICU stay when I was there visiting for CARES was maybe parents that had drug stuff going on or parents that moms that weren't visiting their child or it was like didn't see him for a week or mm. I think one of the neighbors I had was maybe a very young young parent and there might have been like CPS involvement or something so that's kind of my understanding honestly for a NICU I, I wouldn't yeah. know I know yeah. I got a lot of my resources through the nurses the NICU nurses which it's not their job their job their job is to keep my baby alive like the four other babies they have like but one of the nurses I had helped us with some financial just resources because the heart condition there was a heart foundation that just filled out one sheet and they ended up giving like a gas card and a grocery card, which was so helpful. Um, another NICU nurse gave me NICU parent support groups that were online. A handhold was one that I used a few times during our stay and they're great. They have one-on-one, -on -one, they have parent groups. Um, and so that's all essentially my understanding is all a social worker's job, the resources, yeah. the advocacy, the navigating, just the, those different things. Mm -hmm. And I got all that through different providers. Mm. So, Did you always intend to be a stay-at-home mom at this point? I wanted to, I think, especially the first year um, or that, you know, first of four before they start school. I think that was really yeah. important that I wanted to. And now that I'm in it. <laughs> Like, can I part-time go back to work? <laughs> it all depends on his like feeding to yeah. and feeding journey. And, you know, it's more of that, like, I won't ever get this time back. So I'm going to honor and it's my role to raise and grow and teach him and develop those skills. And he is where he is because of the work and the advocacy. And I think of all the appointments and all the therapies that we navigate and schedule and have to do and be present for, and then all the homework they assign and different tools they give me, you know, working those in throughout the week. And so I really think of him as my job and just yeah. this post NICU therapy piece. Like this is my role and I'm honored to have it. And <laughs> this is the freaking hardest job I've ever had. <laughs> and I've done trauma works and this is by far the hardest thing I've ever done yeah yeah because like the, one of the questions is how has motherhood affected your work so I was just wondering yeah I guess if you're able to yeah. is there an answer yeah. for that I think you know before this um a few years ago I worked in um community mental health crisis work. So I worked with kids and teenagers, kids with mental health, um, suicidality, um, you know, 24 seven on crisis call in the homes, in the hospitals with, with kids and youth. And, you know, I think now that I'm a parent, I have a lot more understanding understanding and empathy for the parents that I've worked with in the past because before I would always have the lens of the child like child advocate like this is what the child needs this is the routine this is the behavioral you know things interventions that these th this kid needs this family needs and you know really looking at it as like in in my social work field like it's it's a family system it's not just these the behaviors this kid is the kid is doing these things because of the family dynamic but I think I definitely 
I have more compassion for the people, the, the parents that I've worked with in the past, um, because it's hard. It's, it's a hard job. And if you're sleep deprived or you have multiple kids, or if you're financially struggling or just all that, if you're just navigating your own mental health, like it's, it's hard. Um, yeah. So I think it's given me more compassion and empathy to relate to parents now that I'm a parent. <laughs> And how, I mean, this is a very broad question, but how have you changed since becoming a mother? I think the skills that I had before are more highlighted now, if that makes sense. Like the, the advocacy and my knowledge and, you know, the shame and guilt cycle that I talked about, like it's, I don't know. I think you can give mental health advice to somebody, but then now I have this lived experience that like, is able for me to connect with people on another level than just like a textbook or field experience. Like mm-hmm. I'm a parent too. And I've, I've walked these shoes and you know, it might be different, but there could be overlap. And so I think I try to be more, you, I think you posted something about mom rage. I've seen a lot of this mom rage stuff coming up and I used to be a calm person <laughs> before kids. And now after having a kid, like I I find myself having that like easily irritable anger piece. And I think, you know, that's new to me mm-hmm. and that's something that's changed. And I think it's because of the sleep deprivation, the anxiety, the, you know, because as a profession, it's like, you can't regulate yourself. You can't regulate a child. If you're not regulating yourself, it's easier said than done because if you don't have time and space to self-care and find space to regulate and you're still trying to help a little human being learn those emotions and regulate, like it really puts into perspective and puts yourself in check and your stuff and your baggage and your upbringing and all these things that, have, you know, shaped you brings it all to the forefront when you're raising someone else. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I'm a lot more cognizant of, of those things now than I used to be before having kids. And that's good and bad. It's, you know, it's a time yeah, and space yeah. to, to reflect and, you know, work through all those things. But yeah, I've, I've found, or I find, I guess that my, those feelings of anger and frustration and resentment and everything are a lot stronger when I'm in a situation that feels out of my control. And I think yeah. there's nothing more, nothing that kind of exemplifies that more than a baby that has arrived early. <laughs> earlier than expected um Mm -hmm. and then there's you know health things that you would never have predicted like that that nurse said to you um about if you're a type a or you're a planner I think I think that can be applicable to all types of parenting and all all kind of motherhood experiences but when it's around health then there are certain expectations that you think you should be allowed to have like you know what we see from other people and their experiences and then nothing is like that and it's all out of your control (laughs) it's just I I find like that yeah that so with 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 Hugo my second I definitely I had personal anxiety with my first I had personal anxiety with my second but it presented very differently and it it Mm. presented in anger and it was really surprising and scary and I understand a bit more about it now but and it was all my poor husband it was all directed at him <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> you know and like uh luckily he, he you know 
I think he I think you're aware of that yeah yeah like we've talked about it a lot since as well and I've kind of now with my third I do have that point of comparison because in my first I had birth trauma with my second I think it's still considered birth trauma but it happened immediately after he was born so Mm. you know but with my third I was able to get to a point where and I feel like this, it shouldn't be this way. Like I, I, I remember saying to my, I had a private midwife for my second and after he, Hugo was born and everything, I said, is it possible to have a positive birth and a positive postpartum? She's like, mm. yeah, it is. But I didn't, hadn't had that up until, you know, yeah. and, but, but with Evie, with my daughter, I have luckily been able to have a really positive birth experience and a positive postpartum, yeah. but yeah it's now now I can I can see that second postpartum with Hugo for what it is and kind of be like okay so nothing was in my control and that really broke me down yeah <laughs> and yeah. um and I was really angry about it and just was kind of like impotent rage like there's there was nothing yeah. I could do about it and so my, my poor yeah. husband did cop it cop it quite a bit but luckily he's still around so yeah. <laughs> you know that's <laughs> Yeah. I think you know yeah and the NICU is so much out of your control and I think even post NICU I know it's um premature prematurity awareness month and my boy was bigger he was almost six pounds at 33 weeks he was a big mm-hmm. boy and so remembering too that even though he's a big boy he's still premature yeah and even now a year later like the comparison game of not comparing where they should be at or their adjusted age or comparing what they should be doing to other kids that are have had a normal experience and that that's out of your control like the feeding piece like having to release all of that and the expectations and I remember one of the exercises we did for therapy way back that I tell clients it's like you know the the circle of anxiety or the circle of of control like your inner circle is everything that you have in control and then everything out of your circle is all these external circumstances that you don't have in in your control and trying to focus on the things that you are in control of and that's probably why I had such kind of an unhealthy relationship with pumping because it's the only thing that I really felt I had control over in providing and and doing that for the NICU and it's yeah I'm hoping the rage I think for me it's more the sleep deprived and then those those anxiety triggers come out as anger and it's so easy I'm like I'd rather have it be directed at my husband than my child (laughs) like I really you know a child doesn't deserve to see that anger but yeah it's you know that irritability and I think marriage is tested in that first year Mm -hmm. but I also want to congratulate you like you after having birth trauma like still (laughs) being able to have a second and then a third like (laughs) I'm I always wanted a big family and I'm like after everything I went through like I got in that negative spiral of like how would I ever have another kid (laughs) sorry Hugo's broken in hello Milo's out there isn't he baby where Milo Milo. he's out there can you shut the door for mommy no no (laughs) where's you on the other side cheeky boy where's daddy gone I don't think so come here honey here you go out. Bye bye. See you later. 
so cute. Yeah. Well, and that's something I want to learn from other other NICU or other birth trauma mamas of like what helped. And I obviously it's the conversation with your family and your spouse and your significant other and how to manage that. And part of me is like the anxiety and fear is so easily able to stop you from that. But then I my social work instinct kicks in of the empowerment. It's like if I went through all that, I can do that again. Like yeah. it, it would suck going through that. But at least I know what to do and what to advocate for and all the things that I know now would only benefit me in that future situation. But that's yeah. always something I, I'm curious, like how do people that have you know <laughs> yeah no I know I um <laughs> look I really I did always want a big family and the each and every one of them I in especially in the early days I said to my husband I can't do this again <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is funny and then very shortly after I'm like you know so with my first I had gestational hypertension and so I was induced and it took four days I had no sleep and then I had to have an emergency cesarean, which mm-hmm. was the last thing I wanted and mm-hmm. and how I was treated in that space was really, really traumatic and it was just, mm. yeah, it was there was a lot, a lot going on. Yeah, so I think part of it with planning for Hugo, our second, was a desperation to have a re, not a redo, but mm-hmm. kind of a redo for that birth. The hopes of a norm, a normal <laughs> Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, and I, I, you know, I had actually, I'd hired a private midwife. So I think the system is quite different in Australia to America, but there is obviously obstetric care. And if you go through the public system, you do are kind of technically under an obstetrician, but mostly mm-hmm. you're seeing midwives. And um, even in the labor and delivery, the obstetrician really only shows up after the baby's born or like just as the baby's yeah. about to be born. So they're kind mm-hmm. of, real peripheral um and so you're mostly under midwifery care but the research shows that continuity of care with a known midwife has the best like birth outcomes for both baby and mother so I hired a private midwife with the intention of having a home birth because it also shows that the research also shows that you know more more positive outcomes and I was going for a a vaginal birth after cesarean And mm-hmm. I did have that, um, which I was, which is why the birth was incredible because even though it was spontaneous labor, I was in. So, and and you mentioned it, the word kind of, um, I forget what the context was, but that word failure, um, mm-hmm. they use that for my first labor failure to progress, mm-hmm. and I ended up didn't end up having a home birth for my second. I had to go to the hospital because I went into preterm labor. I ended up in the exact same room that they said I had failed. But so it was, I was very anxious and felt like I was going to throw up. But then when I realized that we weren't kind of going to be able to stop the labor, I decided I was going to reclaim that space as a place of victory. Yeah. Um, and that's what it was. So it was incredible and it was a really empowering experience. But then everything happened after yeah. that with Hugo. Evie, <laughs> without giving too much away, Evie literally had one chance to exist after after our, we had a what he would have been we had like a, a two and a half year old or a three year old and a 10 month old when I fell pregnant mm-hmm. with Evie so gotcha. what, she was ahead of wow. ahead of plan ahead of yeah. schedule she was planned um but definitely ahead of schedule yeah <laughs> and that's what I that's what I say and so yeah that kind of the the, the jump from two to three was ahead of schedule um so yeah. 
that's how we got to that place. <laughs> um, so what's harder is the shift from zero to one versus like one to two, in, two to three. In my experience, zero to one is like being hit by a truck. Like, yeah, yeah. People say do all different things, but I don't see, I guess from my point of view, and not to dismiss anyone else's experience, but I don't see how going mm-hmm. from a child-free life with all the freedom and all the independence and all the yeah privacy and bodily autonomy and sleep Um, yeah and sleep (laughs) absolutely and like the choice of being like oh no I'm gonna sleep in or or oh no I'm gonna stay out and you know do whatever people do I don't remember I don't see how that how it's harder to go from you know that Mm-hmm. from parenthood to more yeah so when people yeah. ask me about how is it with three I'm like it's just adding chaos to chaos you know like that's just where, <laughs> it's just where we're at now and it yeah. can be really hard and I have the last few months found it really challenging um not so much Evie not so much the baby because I've done it three times now so yeah. she's and she's really chill so it's lucky you yeah. know her temperament helps me but our poor four-year-old I realized a few weeks ago he's always going to be the guinea pig because every phase for him, every new phase for him is a new phase for me. I've never done it before. Yeah. yeah. So, but with Evie, I've done all the baby stuff before and mm-hmm. she's, she has made it really easy on me. And mm-hmm. I mean, she's loud. And when she, she's, maybe happy. she's easier because you're better at it. <laughs> Temperaments are all different, yeah. but you've gone through the ringer. Yeah. Like, yeah. And yeah. I think probably because. I'd, so with Evie, I did have, a, again, hired a private midwife and I did get my home birth this time and it was the most incredible yeah. experience of my life. Yeah. And there's just been, and, I've, and the thing is with my first two, I was separated from them and I found that yeah. to be very traumatic. And with Evie, yeah. I was just with her. And I'm like, this yeah. is what it should be like all the time. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I know there's circumstances that are kind of completely don't allow that. But mm-hmm. also in Australia, at least one in three women are walking away from their birth with birth trauma. And mm. our cesarean rate is something like 38% or, or more than mm-hmm. 40. And yeah, that's not, there's a, a documentary called Birth Time. And mm. there's someone in that that said from an evolutionary perspective, um, I think it was evolutionary, like anthropological, anthropological evolutionary perspective, something that's just not mm-hmm. like we as a species would not have survived if we needed that amount of intervention. Right. So, then there's you know what's a, going on yeah there's a really high yeah. rate of induction and not necessarily for you know so there are certain conditions like preeclampsia for example where of course you do need that yeah. this intervention is necessary but there's other things right. like my blood pressure for my first was was under control it was higher yeah. but it was medicated and i now know mm-hmm. i could have gone to term mm-hmm. and been yeah we would have been fine. Um, fine, yeah. Anyway, anyway that's, <laughs> I also yeah. am a co- co-host of um, a podcast called Australian V-Back Stories, so I'm really, really? passionate oh about Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I need to listen to that because I'm at the point, I just met with my OB the first, you know, first time after a year, and they're really recommending me to do another C-section, and I don't want, it's hard to, like, separate 
the trauma, the birth trauma that we had and the the special circumstance around like mm-hmm. what would a normal C-section be and look like. But because I had gestational diabetes, they recommend induction and a scheduled C-section um, because of that. There's no pros, I guess, waiting after to 40 weeks with gestational diabetes. So I'm like, uh, so this medical condition and it's like with being high risk and my age, mm-hmm. it's just... Yeah, I would love my sister had, um, she had her first baby in Germany, and it was like an induced and failed and emergency C section, like a 72 hour thing. And then mm. her second, she went for the V back. And that was her goal. And she prepared and she had found a, a supportive provider for that. And the baby came within like half, half an hour. Mm-hmm. And it was everything she wanted and prayed for. And I, it's just like, yeah, you have these medical teams, like what you wish versus the high risk versus the medical piece mm. versus the diagnosis. Yeah, I just, I would love, you know, in that perfect world, but I don't know if that's something that is in, even in the cards. <laughs> I feel very strongly about it. So take this with like, I yeah. may be getting on my soapbox, but one, yeah. if you're not, you're not, I'm assuming you're not pregnant yet. No. No, yeah, right. Yet. So there's no guarantee that you're going to have gestational diabetes again. Like true. True. <laughs> why are they thinking about that when it's not a guarantee? It's not guaranteed. Anyone can get it. Anyone can not get it. Like it's sorry, yeah. I'm just I'm getting I'm getting ranty. Um yeah. no, that's that's helpful. It's it's good perspective. The the so usually with a VBAC, the worry that they have is uterine rupture. The rupture, yeah. Right. Which is something like zero point one percent chance wow it's really low and actually mm-hmm. women who have never had any kind of birth have a very similar rate it's a really really similar chance of having a uterine rupture no way so, so the language i'll find the research and i'll send it to yeah. you Jen. yeah the language that they use often they're like well once you've had one cesarean your risk doubles but yeah the what the number is is like it literally double the number, right? So there's still a 99% chance that you will not have a uterine rupture. Okay. Like, yeah. so, but they don't put it like that because what they're doing, it's really important to remember the position that the care providers are coming from in private or public mm-hmm. context is policy driven and mm-hmm. funding, funding, but they're, they're covering their asses. That's what they're yeah. doing, right? So they yeah. have to like, okay, in these this small group of people, this, this terrible thing, or not even like, even if you do have a uterine rupture, uh, even a small percent of chance of that is what they consider catastrophic. People who gotcha. do have a uterine rupture, it can still be okay. Like most of the time it is yeah. okay. Yeah. You know? So hmm. uh, there are lots of resources oh, I can send you. Um. So we started, I, I'm doing this podcast with three other women because there was Be Back Birth Stories podcast, but those women were, had to step back and me and my friends were like, we are not losing this resource because it's yeah. it's so it was so beneficial to hear those stories when I was on my, my VBAC journey, my first yeah. one. So we stepped in, we've got 120 submissions. So we've only got, oh. we've only just released. My episode is the first one. So all my three birth stories are on there. If you want yeah. to listen yeah. to that. The second one is out now, Georgia. She's an, another host of it. Um, and she was planning a repeat cesarean and then halfway through changed her mind. And I won't, you know, give it away, but that's wow. there as well. Yeah. There is, yeah. we did just record another one. Amy, our, our another co-host who did have a placental abruption for her first. Right. So she was planning 
a home birth for her first mm-hmm. and then obviously she had the placental abruption and she had to go for an emergency cesarean mm-hmm. um, but then she had two VBACs following that so it is entirely wow. possible okay. from what I've heard about the maternal system in America you will have a fight on your hands we have yeah. a fight on our hands here in Australia too but I don't know that I think I've heard like in some states that it's illegal or they've tried to make it illegal or something like it seems what? a bit yeah I'm not sure I'm like uh, I don't know yeah yeah system I know but I've read I've heard that research too before or especially in the U.S. that within like I don't know if it was a decade or the last 20 or 30 years like the amount of of c-sections have like doubled or something yeah. from what it was back in the day and I just wonder like is it lack of movement like what is caught is it the medical intervention only like that has a huge role to play in yeah in the yeah. cesarean rate because when you when you're induced there's a high risk of the cascade of intervention. And that's what yeah. I knew about in my first pregnancy. I knew about yeah. that. And that's why I did not want to be induced. I fought against it. And then the obstetrician said, I said, I don't want to be induced because I know there's a risk of the cascade of intervention. And she said, yeah. well, if you don't be induced, there's a risk your baby will die. And so oh. they use the really fear mongering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and also at that time in like towards the end of your pregnancy, you've got all these, I mean, during your pregnancy, you've got all these hormones, but there's a particular hormone that um, is ramped up towards the end. And so you become more susceptible to wanting to kind of be people pleasing so that you feel safe and everything is everyone and your baby yourself are protected. And so you kind Mm -hmm. of go along with, so there's interesting, there's (laughs) so much, I'm like trying to like tell you all the things, but yeah there I can there's some definitely some resources I can send to you I love that yeah. um and yeah our podcast is great <laughs> and we do yeah. only have we have kind of an introductory episode where we talk about why we did you know why VBAC matters why storytelling why it's important for us to tell those VBAC stories mm-hmm. and then my episode is the first one and like the f- first story episode and George's mm-hmm. is the second one we've got and what's it called one. it's called Australian VBAC stories so okay. I can, I'll send you a link to it. Follow on, right now. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. We are on Instagram as well. That's such um, a good resource to have because not only like is it just family planning after birth trauma and just like the fears and anxiety and the what ifs and just the the trauma piece and like for our case like I was being monitored. I had an appointment that morning and then four hours, five hours later, I'm in the ER. And so it's like, even just having just extra eyes on, I still ended up in that situation and that no one could predict and no Mm -hmm. one knew what was going on. And so it's like, I know there has to be that, that healing journey so that it's not re-traumatized. And like, I know it's, you know, it's a different placenta going into a new pregnancy. Like there's a a lot of different circumstances. And so I know the mental health piece for me going into that next, you know, whenever we decide will, will be a big learning curve and something Mm -hmm. I have to really be intentional about, um, you know, so that anxiety and and mental health piece. It's hard to separate though. I'm sure it's, you know, it's your body and, but yeah, yeah, there is another podcast she um is called definitely baby she does other kind of mostly parenting stories but she recently did a v-back mini series because she's 
okay. planning. She's sec- in her second pregnancy, so she's mm. wanted to. And I was on there as well, and they're shorter episodes. So, yeah. um, but she's got quite a few, at least six that I know of. So oh. that's that might be another one. Um, and it is from obviously it is from an Australian perspective, but I'll. I won't, I'll try not to bombard you, but I'll send you some things on Instagram. I would love that. I would love cool. that. Thank um, you. And this this is why I love connecting, just the community, just learning all these different resources yeah. that you can, you know, feel empowered by other people sharing yeah. their stories, you know. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I, so my, my, our fourth host, Caitlin, <laughs> um, she, she had, she, had a first primary cesarean and then her second she had a try implant not tried um planned a home birth but and she really did everything she could to have a VBAC but she had to transfer to hospital and did end up having a repeat cesarean mm. um and she said something on the definitely baby podcast that I was like that's absolutely true so for me I would say my second birth was empowering and to an extent <laughs> I, I try really try to keep a, a draw a line between his birth mm-hmm. and then everything that happened after because yeah. everything that happened after was very traumatic. But um, she said that the birth can be healing, but you can't put too much expectation on that because mm-hmm. for her, she didn't get her V back, but she did, yeah. you know, she really, really empowered herself and, and tried all the things. And so, mm-hmm but it's it's like like you said kind of working on your your mental health prior to and not expecting mm-hmm. the birth to solve all the problems kind of thing yeah um I, i'll send you she's she is she was quoted so she was a lot more nice. articulate than than that but yeah. and then i will say my second labor with hugo from active labor to his birth it was 2058 minutes and then mm. evie <laughs> it was 40 minutes <laughs> oh my god oh my god and, um, the pushing stage was four minutes so wow it was just and it was two weeks of prodromal labor and being like is this it is this it so my body yeah, was yeah, doing yeah. all its things slowly but when it, it came too, down yeah. to it it was very fast so it was luckily over. if you have a fourth kid it's gonna be five minutes <laughs> yeah uh, anyway we, we should get back yeah. to the questions about you but yeah. Um, oh, it's okay. It's yeah. great. It's I, good to know. So the next questions have been, I think you probably answered because it's what has been one of the most challenging parts of your motherhood journey. So I might just ask, what has been one of the most rewarding parts of your motherhood journey? Most rewarding part of my motherhood journey has been being able just to be my son's mom. <laughs> like to, to, despite all the odds and everything medical that's been thrown at us and not feeling empowered in the beginning, but a year later, like feeling empowered that I know him the best out of anybody. And like, I can speak to that and like getting to see him grow and do new things and make new milestones and the way he's able to do those things is is because of me and and the environment that I've created for him and the nurturing and not giving up on him and being really present with him and feeling empowered by all these providers but in in therapies but you know me doing those things out of those appointments all the hours and so I think just 
yeah, most rewarding is just being his mom and being able to see how far he's come. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jen. I really appreciate hearing from you and being able to connect with you. Yes, and, um, it was lovely chatting with you. Thanks again for having me. Yeah. It was great resources and yeah, yeah connecting. We'll, we'll stay in touch and I'll send you I'll send you those things. Where are your pants, sir? Sorry, that's my, my four-year-old, not my <laughs> husband. <laughs> You've been listening to the Mother Whelm, where we celebrate honest, unfiltered stories of motherhood. If you would like to be interviewed for the Mother Whelm, please send an email to themotherwhelm at gmail.com or send a direct message to me on Instagram under the handle at the.motherwhelm. If today's episode resonated with you, I would love for you to join our community on Instagram. This is where you can find updates and behind-the-scenes content and share your own unique journey using the hashtag motherwhelmmoments. To keep these powerful conversations going, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with fellow mums who might find solace, laughter or inspiration in these stories. Until next time, you'll be listening to the Mother Whelm. Perfect. Beautiful job. Thank you, my darling. <laughs> <laughs>